to this Resolution podcast, which is a collaboration between Resolution's National Dispute Resolution Committee and the National YRES Committee. Our focus today will be on out-of-court alternatives and how these can be used in your practice from the very start of your career and beyond. I'm Xanthi Papagiorgiou. I'm a member of the DR Committee and I am a solicitor and mediator at Sinclair Gibson based in London. I'm joined today by our panel of experts from the DR Committee, Suzanne Kingston, Mary Raymond and Margaret Kelly. Asking the questions with me today from the National YRES Committee are... Hello, me. My name's Ellen Wilkinson. I am co-chair of the National YRES Committee and I'm a senior associate at Mills and Reeve in Leeds. And also me. Hello, I'm Polly Dallin. I'm also the co-chair of the National YRES Committee and I'm a senior associate and mediator at Family Law Partners based in our Horsham office. Thank you. And now to our experts, please could you each introduce yourselves and let us know why you chose to specialise in DR. Suzanne. Hi, I'm Suzanne Kingston. I'm a consultant now with Mills and Reeve and Kerry Olson in Jersey. I am a mediator, collaborative practitioner, arbitrator and trainer. I deal with all forms of dispute resolution, but I also Uh, and I think this is important, still do quite a lot of litigation. Uh, Why I decided to do it is that almost from the beginning of starting doing family law, I felt there was a better way. I felt that it was incumbent on us to try and help families have the least stressful way forward that they possibly could. And so I trained as a mediator as soon as I possibly could and did as much of that as I could. And I've really enjoyed a balance between doing litigation where you see how what that experience can be like in court and also out of court dispute resolution. Uh, Thanks very much for hosting today. I think this will be an excellent podcast. So thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Kelly Edwards, and I had a, a very rounded training in Mayfair, covered all the seats. I was always drawn to family law, spent a bit of time in Australia and worked over there. But when I came back to the UK, I kind of knew that I wanted to work in the family sphere. I didn't really like the idea of family law being sort of the poor relation or part of the litigation team. So with a colleague, I set up a family law practice, and that was probably one of the first in the country. I always kind of thought that the journey for people separating, sorting out things, kids' finances, all the uncertainty, just needed so much more than legal advice. So I became interested in mediation, and I trained so long before resolution, we're doing training, but I had two amazing people that were part of the team that trained me. That was Angela Lake Carroll and Ruth Smolicum. So the training was really career changing for me. The skills that you learn are they're just useful in every part of your career. And I do really believe that people that are separating and coming out of relationships need a team around them. They're not just going through a legal process. They're going through emotional process, financial process. And working as part of a team is what really attracted me to uh, dispute resolution processes. Thank you. And Mary? Hi. I'm uh, Mary Raymond. I'm, I work at Advantage Mediation Limited, which is my own practice. I'm also a locum solicitor and have been on the children panel and also have specifications for finances and children matters. But mediation is my prime role these days. I'm also a chair of the Resolution Training and Learning Committee and I'm absolutely delighted with doing this podcast. I really hope it's useful for, for those who listen to it. 
So my journey into dispute resolution, I was very lucky when I qualified at Pennington's, I then moved to a firm down in Kent called Brochers, and they were very far thinking and allowed me to get the training I wanted. So I asked to go onto the mediation course very, very early on. I think I trained in 1995, then spent the next 20 odd years primarily working in financial cases and also carrying on a mediation practice alongside that. And I could see, as I think both Suzanne and Margaret have alluded to, that really as legal practitioners, we're also project managers and we need to make sure that the team around the client is there and that the client is fully supported. And there's bits of that that we just can't do. So I sort of took on that project management role quite early on. And I think that the three of us were all early adopters, really, in terms of seeing the future and seeing that class would need to have that team around them, which is now really embedded, but at the time when we training wasn't. And I also trained as a collaborative practitioner and really enjoyed that when I was in traditional practice. And that's having four meetings, having lots of transparency. I think that the reason that I really focused on mediation was just having that 360 degree view of the situation not having one side of the story which you tend to get when you're working for one client obviously we now have one lawyer two clients there's moving forward as well but for the majority of my career one lawyer has represented one client and so you see 80 degrees of the situation and actually when you're later you see the whole situation you speak to both clients and actually you realize that some things are very easy to resolve very quick to resolve and some things are an issue that does need to be focused on. So I really wanted to get that all around holistic to the client need. That's why I focused on mediation. Great. Well, it's brilliant to have you all here. And without further ado, we have a lot of questions to get through and lots to talk about. The first question is that there are so many different qualification routes into practicing DR. Which routes would you recommend and why? So uh, I know I've just been speaking, Alan, but I'll, I'll, I'll speak to this one. So as the Chair of Training and Learning for Resolutions National Committee, we are focusing on meeting the needs of practitioners from day day dot, from day one. And what I would really recommend is that you look at the breadth of training that Resolution is offering now. We have a diploma that's being rolled out. And within that diploma, there are a couple of really useful modules to really understand and get insight into out-of-court resolution. One of them is an OCDR module, which is out-of-court dispute resolution module, which covers everything from neutral evaluation to arbitration. To, and, and it's a day, so we're not teaching you how to be those practitioners, but we are explaining, giving you an insight into what is involved. So we have mediation, collaborative, etc. So we also have an integrative practice model, which is the, I'm going to say Australian model, which is very commonly used in Australia. And there's some practices in this country that now use it where you start off with an entire team around the client and the client gets introduced to the whole team right from the beginning so you might have a financial advisor you might have a parenting consultant as well as a lawyer as well as a mediator etc so those are a couple of uh, really early courses that you can do early on in your career and they will give you a really comprehensive overview then if you want to take things further after a couple of years of being in practice, you can then apply to, for example, become mediation trained or collaborative trained. But you do need to be a few years call cool to be able to do that, just so that you 
have got a bit of experience under your belts. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, Marion, in fact, the in terms of more length of time uh, call for qualifications for arbitration and hybrid mediation, for arbitration, you need to be qualified at least 10 years and you need to have some references. And it's a two day training course generally undertaken over a weekend to facilitate all those barristers who want to train as arbitrators as well as solicitors with the busy practices. And you have to do an assessment. So you have to do some award writing after the course, and that's externally and internally moderated and marked. And for hybrid mediation, that's a course that's a day and a half or two days. And that's, again, an advanced mediation course. So there are other routes to take later on in your career. And the, the initial mediation course is about 10 days and it involved it's yeah. mainly remote resolution off of the foundation training. I would highly recommend it. I did the resolution training uh, for mediation. I did the resolution training for collaborative. We're also running collaborative courses, but you do need to be, I think it's three years qualified. What I would say is that if you've got extensive experience prior to actually starting your qualified career, then we can look at that because I have spoken to people who've, for example, been a paralegal for 10 years or been a judge's clerk for 10 years. And so we will we will look at that and see whether there's any way of abridging that. But really, you wouldn't probably want to start developing these skills until you've got two or three years of being a lawyer under your belt, I would have thought. Yeah, I've done a little bit of research into the mediation training just because I thought it might be helpful for today. And Resolution do offer a course. It takes quite a commitment. It's, it's an eight-day course and it comes in, in three slots of three days. And there's two assignments that have to be completed as well. Course costs two thousand five hundred plus VAT at the moment, so that's something for your training partner to be looked at. But once you finish the course, that's the sort of the beginning of your mediation journey. But you, something really great happens, then you get some, somebody called a professional practice consultant to supervise you. All mediators have supervisors, and it's a fairly new concept for us as lawyers, but it's fantastic. I love having a supervisor, touch base, reach out to them from help, for help when tricky things come up and believe me they do in mediation but once you've done your course that's just the beginning of the next step which is to be credited mediator that takes a couple of years you need to undertake mediations so that you've met a bunch of com- competence and your PT would be really a great support in getting you through that so you know how would you sell this to your your partners as a fairly young associate well I think it's a, a great process to be involved in you would need to show a lot of commitment and I think that any partner should you know acknowledge that but also it's just such an asset to any firm to have a a group of mediators who could offer this as a holistic team to people that are separating and also you get to meet a whole your network widens fantastically and you will get referrals for mediation so I think that a sales pitch for your your budgets for your training could be well put to a partner who's looking at the bottom line I think it really does add It's really interesting to hear from all three of you about the different training that's available and the different routes that are available. And I think as juniors, certainly there's a lot of enthusiasm at our end of the profession for training in DR. And we're guided by trailblazers such as you three in in that regard. I would like to hear a little bit more from, from you, though, about how you would persuade your firm or employer to invest in dispute resolution training for junior members of their team and how you might encourage a junior member or a junior solicitor to go about that, trying to campaign for that training for themselves. 
I think it's imperative that you should be allowed to do that sort of training if you show a passion to want to do it. And the sorts of reasons I'd be giving is that it's really important to be ahead of the curve when you're thinking about the practice generally. So looking now at Obviously, there's litigation, but there is a whole range of other forms of out of court dispute resolution. And you want your practice to be there to be able to offer all of those sorts of elements. And so there are so many advantages out of court dispute resolution that more and more clients are choosing them. The courts themselves are making sure that appropriate cases are taken out of the court arena. So to that extent, I think you should be able to say, well, it enhance your practice generally. Also, the skills that you learn, even if you don't use them on a daily basis, are fantastic skills. And as Margaret said, I think the widening of your network, I think all of us who trained as mediators are probably still in touch with our mediation peer group, our collaborative pods. And these are people who refer cases to us some 20 or 30 years after we trained. So for loads of different reasons to include business development, marketing, and also how your practice is being seen externally, I think you should be able to persuade the partners. And if not, get one of us in to do it for you. Exactly. Thank you. So if we manage to convince our partners that we need to go on this course and we become mediators, or how do we convince our clients that they should be going for alternatives to court? A lot of clients are conscious of cost. So what is the cheapest and most cost-effective way of resolving a dispute? Well, I sort of feel being a typical lawyer, my answer to that is that all depends. I think the initial meeting with a new client is is so, so super important in establishing what might work best for that person. But to be able to assess that, you do need knowledge of all the processes and also to have in mind that what might be a suitable process at the beginning of the case may may change over time, depending on what happens. So for me, at the outset, I think it's best to start exploring with any potential new client what their goals are. And the key here really is to listen carefully to their responses, as you'll get some clues from those responses about what might be a good fit for them. In collaborative law, which we've talked about already, parties do complete an anchor statement quite often. Well, they don't need to call it that within the first meeting. It's quite a useful thing to maybe do with somebody if you've got that time and space. Work out with them what they what they want, what their goals are. Have a conversation about that. Maybe get them to write something in their own words, three or four lines. Could be their anchor statement. And that can be revisited as the process goes on. Sometimes goals can become obscured by all the other things that are going on at the time. Or sometimes people can lose sight of what's going on because of the stress or emotion that they're suffering at the time. But in terms of what you have to do, if there's finances, you need full disclosure. That's regardless of whatever option the person goes to. So if someone's about to dissipate or hide assets... You might think, you know, I need a freezing injunction and a freezing injunction is not cheap, but it is appropriate at that moment. So what I'm really saying here is don't get blinkered into we're going down this route, we're going down this route. Listen and assess as you go along. The other thing is keeping clients safe. You know, this is really important. We have to do that as best we can. So at that first meeting, again, it's such an important meeting. Just explore with the client, you know, how are things with your partner, your ex-partner? How did you used to resolve? Uh, disputes how you're resolving them now do you feel that you can speak freely and then once you've got all this information you can actually suggest to clients some of the options that you think might work for them 
So, for example, if the parties are reasonably cordial, open about finances and sufficiently confident to can discuss matters, then mediation's looking like a good fit. And even if they can't sit in the same as each other or one wants a solicitor present, that this is possible in mediation because it's quite tailor-made. And the other thing that I love about mediation, if it is a fit for the parties, is they're in charge of their own decisions. So when they come out at the end, they have um, made their own decisions. So that's a number of things to keep in mind when looking at cost effectiveness. What's the right fit, case and the parties? Can I just say a couple of words there about arbitration yeah. and hybrid mediation? In terms of arbitration, I think the key benefit is that you get an adjudication. So although it's out of dispute resolution, you are getting the answer, gives you an adjudication by somebody when you go to an arbitrator. And for all these forms of dispute resolution, confidentiality is key as well. Obviously, keeping things away from the press, particularly now that there is this movement towards greater openness and transparency. The processes are often more informal and in arbitration you can deal with either the whole case or just bits of the case so you can deal with discrete elements and basically I I would have thought that there's a whole range of positives for that. In hybrid mediation I think that quite often the lawyers are involved and engaged in the process, they're often there in the room so I think that lawyers quite like that because one of the concerns that lawyers have about mediation is that they don't know what's going on. It's a bit the clients go into mediation, they're not quite sure what's going on. But if they're there, they can advise there and then and then things can move very quickly and again, cost effectively. Just picking up slightly on something that, well, you've all referred to, but I think it was Margaret's words when she said talking about whether what, what process is the best fit for clients. How would you convince a client who comes with the mentality of wanting to fight that DR is the way forward or is at least an option they should consider? Well, it's a part of the skill. (laughs) I think the, the, the way that I tend to approach it with people is, and I do get people that come in and say, no, I want my day in court. I don't ever want to speak to them again. I want you know, I want, I want, I want. I just sort of like, to, let's take a step back and let's just see, you know, how hard you've worked over the years to accumulate your pot of money, how you're going to have a life ahead of you going forward and how, what the best way for you to come through this journey that I'm going to help you with and come out of the other side. For me, listening to you, it seems that maybe you might want to consider some other forms of out-of-court dispute. There is a long, long backlog in court. Once you get involved in the court, there are a whole number of steps that you must take within a certain amount of time. It's a constant request for information. It's quite adversarial. And if we step back and just start working on finding a solution outside of the court process, let's see how we get on. And if that doesn't feel right for you, we can review other options going forward. So I look at I look at the cost for them, I look at the time frame for them, and I I try to really say to them, you know, I've done thousands of these. This is your first one, and I'm trying to give you my experience of how I see it working out in the best way for you. Then I have to listen to them and see what they say. And also, I suppose the benefit of maintaining 
a good relationship going forward. Not everybody wants that. Not everyone, It's not possible for everyone. But lots of people do see the benefit of that, particularly if they've got children. The idea of going to their children's weddings, their grandchildren's school plays, etc., etc. So looking at the long game rather than the immediate instant game that is in front of them. So thinking about the, the future and what it might mean for the whole family if they were able to do things in a better way. And, and I think that it's fair to say that there are some guide like guides and indicators. So if you have a client that is, as I would describe it, on transmit rather than receive. So it's very early days of the separation. We know, don't we, that at the point of, of separation, abusive behaviours escalate. That's proven by research now. So we know that the time around actual separation, which can go on for some months and families can all live in the same house for some some months, if not years, know that that's going to be a very stressful situation. And, you know, there's no detachment possible. It's not really to, to have detachment. So what we could do is suggest ways of being prepared for other alternatives out of court options, but also getting that work of using the court timetable. I think one of the most important things to get across to can all happen in parallel. We have that staircase. We can go up towards the court or we can go back down towards rooms and we can go up and down. We don't just have to stick with the court solution. So I think that's a really, really important message to get across. Well, it's court. That's it. We're going to court now. And one of the things I spent most time talking to people about is that there may be a point in the future when something is more suitable. So I I think that also, I think, uh, Suzanne, you were wanting to talk about the use of language. Really important, too. And I think, again, that's for lawyers to consider very carefully the sort of language that they use when they're discussing the dispute that the parties that clients might have you know using words like winning and fighting may be the sort of language of war of court and so trying to modify that language and to think carefully about the individual who's in front of you supporting that individual rather than making it into just a sort of factory of dealing with cases so thinking very much of the individual and modifying your language and thinking carefully when you're saying things, when you're writing things. We know, for example, the resolution code of practice, how important it is for people to write appropriately as well. So just bearing that in mind as you're dealing with these sorts of cases. And don't be afraid to pick up the phone because that, that if I had a pound for every client in mediation that said, no, no, I don't think my lawyer's spoken to the other person's lawyers. And it just makes me feel that it's a opportunity because we can all be kind to each other we can all be polite to each other as Suzanne just said the resolution code we are not supposed to be rolling up our sleeves and getting into the pleasantness and the sad emotion the difficulty and investing in that we are there to do a professional job there's just one other thing that I'd like to mention which is the mediation voucher scheme which has been provided by the Minister of Justice and the Foundation Council and so it can push clients over into the idea of using mediation to resolve something if not everything if there is a children element in relation to the issues to be solved then that couple regardless of their means they can be multi-millionaires are entitled to apply for family mediation voucher which is 500 pounds 
It can't be used for the initial assessment meeting. So usually there's a one-to-one meeting with each of the client. Um, it can't be used for that, but it can be used for joint mission. And it will get a client sort of something around an hour to an hour and 20 minutes of joint mediation. People don't get something for nothing these days. They're always overjoyed to think that they can get this. And it's relatively straightforward to apply for it. It's usually given very, very quickly. And it can be used from anything for child-inclusive mediation, so consulting children, to having, as I say, a, a joint meeting where you're talking about finances and children arrangements. So don't forget that that's also a bit of a selling point for the client. Thank you all. There's a, a lot of takeaways there for us in terms of how we work with our own clients and how we encourage them gently into dispute resolution rather than court processes. I just wanted to pick up about the point that Mary made about picking up the phone to the solicitor or your counterpart. There's a learning there for us in terms of dealing with our own clients, but what would your advice be? What would you do if you find yourself in a situation where the person the other person, the other parent, the other the person, a previous partner or their solicitor is very resistant to dispute resolution and is not working with you or, or engaging in, in those ideas. So I think you just carry on with your own practice and you keep trying. There's a, a particular part of the I'm a locum, so there's a particular part of the country that I've worked in, which I'm not going to name. But I've talked to a few practitioners in that area and I have I when I was working in those cases I was constantly ringing people up trying to speak to people about really complex particularly children matters where you know that there are children at the heart of the issue and nobody would take my calls and nobody would phone me back and that was a cultural issue in that particular geographical region but I'm very happy to say that that's not typical and generally speaking when you pick up the phone and talk to people you can certainly say that it's you know a confidential discussion not one be sort of recorded and repeated within the court environment I do think that generally people respond well so I would say try there's one particular practitioner who's on our committee Mary Shaw who would say never ever write a letter and she she delivers training about this she would always say pick up the phone you'll achieve so much more if you pick up the phone and keep trying if you have to threaten cost consequences because we know at the moment that the judiciary are on our side in relation to this. So they are wanting people to try and resolve the cases themselves out of court, if at all possible, using one of the methods we've been talking about. And so you can threaten cost consequences and more and more they are being given. Thank you. Moving on to a slightly different topic. Do you think that the advent of resolution together, the one couple, one lawyer model, will impact on mediation? Thanks very much for addressing this question because I've been delivering this training with Angela Lake Carroll, who wrote the PAC. So, just to clarify, Resolute Together is the resolution model, uh, which has been approved by the SRA, of working for two clients. So, one family lawyer working for two clients who have a family dispute and or for issues that need to be resolved. There are other firms in the country who are delivering this under another name. What mediation has got together is a pack, so terms of engagement, etc., are all pre-packed so that you as a practice don't have to work out how to put together your paperwork and ensure that it's SRA compliant. So, so that's just to clarify what resolution together is. The second point to make, I think, is that certainly Angela and Carroll, who I said wrote the, the documents for this model, would say is that resolution together is not mediation light. And I think it's so crucially important to understand that that's a pivotal part of resolution together. So 
it is not mediation. It is similar in its model in that you are working with two clients, but that's but you're also working with two clients when you're an arbitrator, for example, but that is not mediation. So I think it's so important to make that distinction. If you're going to deliver a resolution together, you have to be a solicitor you have, or a lawyer. You have to have a practicing certificate. You have to have insurance. And why do you need all of those things? Because you are giving legal advice to that couple. And there's a, an absolutely crucial decision that you have to make as a lawyer at the beginning of resolution together, which is, do this does, does this couple have a single common interest? And you have to keep going back to that thought or decision regularly when you're delivering advice to a couple within resolution together you're doing domestic abuse screening which you would do in mediation etc but you are giving legal advice to that couple to, to each of them in front of the other they will they will both know what legal advice you are giving them but you will be giving them legal advice you do not do that in mediation there is no legal advice given in mediation you can give information about the legal process and about how a court might approach something, uh, an issue, but you would not be giving legal advice ever in mediation. So it's, it's really important to understand that this is not mediation. Uh, there are features of mediation that crop up in resolution together because you are seeing the couple together, but you might actually refer out and you hopefully those who are now practicing as we've got a group of people who are practicing resolution together they will be referring out to mediators which is maybe referring into resolution together but they are two entirely separate approaches and therefore i think that resolution together will enhance mediation but it's not going to take over mediation and similarly mediation cannot be a replacement for resolution together and is not is not a substitute for resolution together does that help? Does that answer your questions? Yes, thank you. Thanks, Mary. Really helpful clarification. Thank you, Mary. And it's something that I can kind of pass on to my own clients when talking to them about the different options. So domestic abuse is obviously something that we family lawyers all have to be very mindful of at all stages of advising and supporting our clients. Looking at it from a DR perspective, what guidance could you provide about spotting potential domestic abuse issues early? If you feel able to do so, could you expand on your own experiences and perhaps where you've decided DR might not be appropriate and, and why? Yeah, I, mean, um, I think in terms of mediation, you'd be looking at the intake procedure and making sure that you are fairly questioning the clients about any potential signals that there may be in relation to domestic violence may be signposted when they complete their preliminary information form. So you'd look at that carefully. Then you'd ask lots of questions and I'll leave it to Margaret to talk about her personal experience of that. But I just wanted to go on. And say in terms of arbitration, it's really important that we have, particularly in the children arbitration, safeguarding undertaken. And so there's a very strict procedure in arbitration for the arbitrator to ensure that the clients have completed safeguarding questionnaire before they go into arbitration, that they've had DBS checks undertaken and their solicitors have also questioned them about safeguarding aspects prior to the arbitration starting. So that's very key in arbitration. But I'll leave it to Margaret to talk about her own personal experience in mediation. Thanks. So I think it's back to that thing about we, we do have a duty to keep our clients as safe as we can. It's not possible to keep them completely safe. And I think many 
family law practitioners, me and Kid, have had the really horrible experience of clients being murdered. And I've also had an experience of a client murdering somebody. And so it's not always possible to keep them 100% safe. But when you're looking at domestic abuse, what's really quite chilling is sometimes people don't even know that they're a victim of it because they it's been normalised by the perpetrator. So it's so important to keep your antennae up to really, really listen to what people say. And it may well be that they'll just give you a throwaway comment such as, well, I don't see my, my parents much anymore. And you, you might just say, hmm, well, you know, could you just tell me why? And, and they might give you a really innocent answer such as, well, they've just moved to Scotland and, you know, they used to live around the corner and I see them every now I don't. Or they may come out with um, something much more worrying such as, well, he doesn't, I um, suppose, um, making the perpetrator the male, but the other person doesn't want me to see them. And also they come out in the conversation as the person opens up. Oh, they, they don't like me going out with my friends either. And, and then this is where your antennae would start to come up. This person looks as if they're suffering with some sort of, they're victims of some sort of abuse. So what would you do with those people? You, you, you know, you would be thinking, well, I'm not sure about this. And as Mary has already said, the time of separation in these domestic abuse situations is really dangerous for the victim, potentially, because the person who's the abuser is quite controlling. Their behaviour is very, very controlling. And the very fact of the person moving away is moving away from that control. So it's good to have a, a good black book, a bit old school, got a book. <laughs> And I highly recommend the, it's it's called IDAS, Independent Domestic Abuse Services. And it's such an amazing resource. It has all, and the other thing I like about these resources, they have what they call the quick escape. So if you're looking at it, you can just press a button and it completely goes off the screen immediately. But it has this pack for if you're leaving a, a domestic abuse situation, you know, what you need to bring, what you need to have in your emergency pack, because it recognises that it must be very difficult. So, you know, don't forget to bring the passports, the birth certificates, whatever, whatever. And also don't forget to bring some things that are you're attached to, such as photographs, because the other person may destroy them all. So I, I think the thing is to just be aware that mediation is not for everybody. And if you think that you're getting a lot of messages that someone is in a domestic abuse situation. Either talk to one of your colleagues, possibly quite a few resolute experts in the domestic abuse speciality, maybe contact them, refer to them, refer to one of these organisations. If you're worried about children, if something safeguarding on children has come up, then contact the local authority or let the people, that's what you're going to need to do. In terms of case I've had, I tend to they tend to be few and far between that I don't take on as mediation. But I did have one where the man was stalking the lady and she was very, very keen for the mediation to go ahead. And of course, to respect that view, he wanted the mediation to go ahead. But when I explored about the stalking and he was doing it regularly, I just became very worried that I was going to endanger her by putting her in this situation. I've got the stalker and another person in the mediation, even in separate rooms. And having spoken to her a bit more, it seemed to me that she was probably a, a victim of domestic abuse, controlling behaviour. Stalking is, is quite another aspect of this. So I, I 
gently told her that I really didn't think that mediation was a suitable option for her. I gave her some details of, I can't remember which organisation it was now, but but uh, that assisted women that were suffering with, with domestic abuse so that she could start exploring what she might do. I was quite lucky because she she also had the name of a good family solicitor that she was going to see. So she went off to see that person and got the support there. So that that's just one example. I don't know if Mary or Suzanne want to share anything else. In I, I think the sorts of things you'd be looking for would be domestic violence, when it occurred, what sort of domestic violence, whether it was a one-off or whether it was been continuing over the course of the relationship. Were there issues of coercive control, whether they're emotional or financial, whether there was substance abuse, alcohol abuse? So they're the sorts of things that you'd be looking at in terms of considering whether or not it was safe for the couple to be in any form of dispute resolution. And I think it's really important to be really aware of those and make sure that you, you know, look at all aspects of that before taking on a case. I might just add, because one of things that, that have developed in between and post-COVID is this mediation, mediating online. And I think you have to be double vigilant when you're mediating online. So sometimes there'll be a situation where couples aren't separate, physically separated yet. They're in the same house. So if you're going to be decide that you're going to go ahead with mediation online, it's sort of sensible to work out where they're actually physically going to be for the mediation. Maybe one of them can go to the office. Maybe one of them can be at home. And also what's going to happen after the mediation. Mediation can throw up an awful lot of emotions and it doesn't always end super clean. So that these are extra things that you need to be alive to. So particularly if the, the couple are just newly separated or in the process of separated. So, so they've decided the marriage isn't going forward, but they're still living in the same accommodation. So there's a lot of things to think about with the online mediation, although it does have a great deal of advantages as well for people. And I think I agree with everything that Margaret and Suzanne have said. I think one of the the biggest areas that we now know about um, is control and coercion, so not just the violence, although as a mediator, I tend to be the first port of call for someone to talk about that sort of incident. And it's surprising how often I am told about that sort of eventuality for the first time. I've got a lot of client mediation who will be telling me about violent behaviour for the first time. I'm the first professional they've told, not their GP, not nobody else, not their family, nobody else. So I think as young lawyers and young practitioners, it's really important to remember that actually you may be the first person who's told about this and you also need to be alive to all from child and coercion what I would say is trust your gut instinct if someone keeps saying keeps repeating a phrase like well of course the kids don't talk to him anymore or her anymore you can explore that because if it doesn't sound right to you it probably and also to just be aware that control and coercion takes all kinds of forms and it might be someone sending their partner to Coventry for months, just not talking to them for months. It might be them throwing themselves to the ground unexpectedly, but repeatedly. So just look for patterns of behaviour and just be aware that control and coercion can come in lots of different forms and listen really carefully and trust your gut. If you feel after a meeting 
there was something there that that person said, I didn't explore it, but I feel like I ought to do, then go back and explore it with them because there's probably something in it. I'm sure that you've lived in our society long enough to to pick up these signals now and even if you're not sort of 10 20 30 years qualified you can tell if something's coming across and it's not quite right it's that sleep at night test if you're thinking when you're in the shower or or in bed at night "Mm, that just didn't sound quite right then it probably wasn't i just wanted to flag as well our inbuilt bias really and we've just demonstrated on this call already and we really do need to be mindful that Abuse works both ways. It can be woman to man as well as man to woman. There's so many more resources now for uh, domestic abuse support for men. We've got Mankind, we've got in, in Kent, I've got Save Day, and also to be really mindful of suicide prevention. I sadly have had experience of many years ago clients of mine doing suicide, and it's devastating. So you can take suicide awareness training it's completely free the zero suicide alliance charity that delivers uh, training so that you can look for signs you can spot warning signs so obviously consider ourselves to be first responders 999 but actually you are often the first person that's told about these incredibly stressful things that people and often particularly men who do not have a support network and often have friends that they don't talk to And so it's about signposting for those sorts of issues as well. And can I just pick up on on something there, Mary? And it's this, that I think we do do a very stressful job and we do often hear things that are confronting and difficult. And we need to be aware of how that impacts us as individuals as well. And I just wanted to mention the supervision course that Gillian Bishop is championing at FLIP faculty and that there are now a number of supervisors trained and if you can ask your firm whether or not they would pay for you to have supervision that might be a really good thing for you to have to help you through any of the issues that you may come across in your professional life so in particular with junior lawyers that's something I would really urge people to talk to their firms about. I totally totally agree with that we don't look after ourselves. How can we look after all the other people? <laughs> and and I, I have come to supervision very late in my career. So I'm 92, yeah, 30 years qualified. And I only started supervision three years ago. I'm doing a parenting coordination course because I'm a parenting coordinator as well. And I look back now and I'm flabbergasted. How did I carry on in my practice, as Suzanne's quite rightly said, without any supervision, being able to talk about these things and particularly being a childcare lawyer all the social workers were going off and getting supervision and the lawyers were just carrying on going back to their desks carrying on as if nothing had happened so I do really commend you to do supervision and if your if your manager your partner in charge is not keen you don't have to do it monthly you can do it quarterly that will reduce the cost but just knowing that you can stack up a few things to talk to someone who's not within the firm someone who is completely independent, completely neutral, I would say it's money very well invested. Thank you all for sharing those insights and your personal experiences. And what I'm really hearing from what 
each of you are saying is that it's these matters, the things that we deal with are incredibly personal and they're incredibly individual. And I wanted to pick up on something that Margaret said, which is that mediation isn't for everyone. And I just wanted to ask you in the context of what the government has been proposing this year, which is that mediation should become compulsory in Children Act matters. I'm aware and, and I don't know whether I mean, I'm sure you're all aware whether our listeners are that resolution spoke out very much against this earlier in the year and the, the issue of putting parents in a situation that not only might not be appropriate, but actually might not be safe for them. I wanted to ask you all what you think about that and what you think about this idea of compulsory mediation. Yeah, I fully endorse what resolution said was party to the response um, to the consultation. And I think it is really important for us to acknowledge that although all of us and see the absolute benefit of out-of-court dispute resolution. It isn't for everybody. And it is really important that people do have a choice. Obviously, I think it's incumbent on us to try and encourage people in the right circumstances, the right situation, the right case. But I don't think it's right to force people into doing anything like this on a compulsory basis. I, I very much agree with that. I'm, I'm sort of quite worried for this idea of compulsory mediation. And it comes back again to the domestic abuse for me. I'm looking at someone who is in a domestic abuse situation and they go to see their first port of call and it's, oh, now you have to go to mediation. I think that might really impact upon the person. It might mean that they're stuck between a rock and hard place, mediation or stay in the relationship. And that is really putting them in, in my estimation in quite a lot of danger and also at the time they leave the relationship which we've already discussed as well that is a sort of a a dangerous zone for a victim and so it's putting them in danger again and the other thing is that uh, the, the mediation could actually perpetrate or continue the the abuse by making the victim go to a situation where the perpetrator can continue the abuse so the I think that the Amayam being compulsory, I think, fits the bill because a, a properly undertaken Amayam, which should take maybe about an hour, some people take longer, should give you a chance to explore, pick up all, all these different messages that are coming through as to, in your assessment, whether that person can manage mediation. I mean, it, it's quite important that they can actually manage it themselves, but to force them into it, I just don't see how that's going to benefits and particularly our more vulnerable people so that's really where I'm coming from and I completely echo everything that Suzanne and and Margaret have said and a point that was made earlier which is that with for example mediation couples are coming to their own conclusions they've got their own agency they're making their own decisions no one's telling them what to do if you then make that compulsory you do remove that element of I'm invested in this, this is my choice, I'm doing, I'm making these decisions and these outcomes are what I want for my family, my children, my finances. You just remove that element completely and that really, really troubles me as well. But I do completely echo what Suzanne and Margaret have said about the safety of clients. It just seems to be a very, very risky strategy. And yes, mediation, for example, can be used as a tool to perpetuate abuse. And we would not be want to be part of that. Um, yeah, lots of lots of concerns. Thank you. And coming now to our final question, what do you each think about the future of DR? I'm very, very excited. <laughs> I, I think there's a lot to uh, 
to think about and to be excited about because we've seen such a steady shift over a number of years with new processes, mediation, collaborative, hybrid mediation and arbitration. There's a lot of opportunity for people to engage in this work, whether as clients or as practitioners. And I really think that we're in a time of changing the family law, which is really important. I fully agree. And I think that now our dispute resolution is did. So it's it's mainstream now. It's not going away. It's expanding. And then we look at how the court, this is creaking and really quite crippled with, you know, the COVID and the withdrawal of funding and the length of time that it can take for you to get their decisions made. And such a variation around the country. There are parts of the country where if you issue a Children Act application, you are definitely looking at at least six months before you get your first hearing. And then other parts of the country where you'll probably get it within six to eight weeks. And that isn't a suitable or functioning service. So I absolutely think it's mainstream now. It's embedded. And I think as the cost consequences of not exploring it become more and more again, mainstream, regularly used, then those who want to use the court process to delay, 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 rack up costs, that's going to be so much harder. But there is a role for the court to play. It's just that the court is really struggling at the moment. So I, I'm very optimistic about out-of-court dispute resolution. I think it's the way forward. I kind of love the idea that we've got so many options now. And as sort of more senior practitioners we've been trying hard to move out of the silo mindset so instead of saying to somebody right you're in the mediation box you're in the collab box you're in this box what we're saying is there's all these options and let's say mediation will start with that you'll get stuck you might farm it out to early neutral evaluation bring it back in you might get a written advice from somebody bring it back in so the, the parties they're not really necessarily that interested in all the labels generally they're interested in getting a solution so if we can pick the correct solutions and use them at the right time and the more we get confident as practitioners with all the different options the more the public will learn to be familiar with all the different types of things and i feel we'll get a better service in moving on their journey from relationship that has broken down to their new life so yeah I'm really think it's really bright and it's great to be talking to the future thank you I'm afraid that's all we have time for today thank you very much to our panel of experts Margaret Mary and Suzanne to Polly and to Ellen and to all you listening it has been a very insightful afternoon for us and I hope it has sparked an interest in exploring alternatives to court with your clients too as a reminder there's lots of resources on the resolution website and you can find more information about the topics we've discussed today. Thank you.